Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. Today's message is titled, Why is God Consistently Unconventional? For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Not long ago, the website lifehack.org posted an article titled, 20 cool jobs for unconventional people, no matter how old you are. I don't know if they were implying that the older you are, the less unconventional you are. Uh, The goal in the article, though, was to assemble a list of inspiring, positively perfect, cool jobs for those who were looking to make a career change. We don't have time to go through all 20, so I'll spare you that, but there are just a few I thought were worth mentioning for any that might want to update their resume. Uh, First of all was uh, the golf ball diver. Uh, The golf ball diver rescues stray golf balls from the bottom of ponds across golf courses. Uh, Most golfers do their best to avoid water hazards, but Still, many end up meeting a watery grave. Over time, hundreds of golf balls will accumulate at the bottom of ponds. And so golf ball divers not only rescue the many balls that have errantly flown off course, but also help the environment by cleaning up the ponds that caught them. Uh, Next, there is a smoke jumper. Uh, This position is a little more dangerous, a little more adrenaline required, a little more risk involved. Uh, Definitely, you would want a GoPro camera for this this job. It's exciting. Uh, Smoke jumpers are wildland firefighters who parachute into remote areas in order to help suppress a fire before it gains more momentum or strength. And then there is the pet food taster. Yes, I know. Uh, a legitimate position. I did not know that. But if you spend, excuse me, if you need something a little more on the safe side, say as compared to the smoke jumper, uh, then being a pet food taster might be just the right flavor for you. <laughs> just as medications are tested on animals before being tested on humans. The pet food industry likes to test pet food on humans before testing them on animals. I found that very interesting in my research. Uh, This is because pets will often eat what is ever in front of them as food, but pets are not able to give feedback on things like taste or texture or the nutritional value of the uh, goodies. Now, the job may not pay as much as, you, as much as you would like, but I'm told there are a lot of treats involved. Now, for most of us, I suspect that unconventional work is something we would prefer to watch, but not prefer to do. However, if you've walked with the Lord for any length of time, you've probably noticed that God loves to work unconventionally. We're going to take a break from our current series on the parables of Jesus, and Lord willing, we'll resume that next week. 
I'd like to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Psalm 103, Psalm 103, and pull out the sermon notes that you received in the worship folder when you came in. I also want to encourage our men to take up the spiritual leadership role that God has entrusted to them by having their Bibles out and taking notes as well. If you need a Bible, uh, just raise your hand and one of our ushers can bring one to you. This morning I wanted to um, share some things the Lord has been reminding me of lately that I think are timely for where we are on our journey as a church. Uh, I know that my faith has been stretched and enlarged through the church planting process, and I trust that yours has been as well. Psalm 103 is one of my, if not my favorite, psalm. Uh, I preached a message on it last year because I love it so much, and it has brought me so much comfort over the years. Uh, David wrote it, and it is packed with great encouragement and theology. But I want to focus on one verse in particular, and that is verse 7. David writes, He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. Now, he, of course, is referring to the Lord. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. There are two foundational insights I want to draw from this verse before we move into the main part of my message this morning. And uh, this is letter A and B up in the introduction section of your notes. The first insight is... Uh, Letter A, few of God's people understand why God does what he does. Few of God's people understand why God does what he does. Uh, When David says he made known his ways to Moses. Ways comes from a Hebrew word that means Many things. It means a road, a direction, a course of life, or a manner of practice. Um, In this context, I think what David is saying is that the Lord sometimes reveals his intentions, motives, or long term plans to his leaders. For example, Moses had multiple meetings with the Lord during which the Lord sort of let Moses in on what he was doing and what he was up to with the people of Israel. Uh, However, there are many more examples in the scriptures of leaders in the Bible who did not know what the Lord was doing or up to. They did not know God's intentions, motives, or long-term plans. Uh, David himself is one that comes to mind if you read the rest of the Psalms, there are several Psalms in which he's crying out to the Lord, and I would paraphrase in modern language, what are you doing, Lord? Where are you at? I don't understand. And then, of course, there's the 12 disciples. Uh, A survey of the Gospels will reveal the disciples often did not know what Jesus was doing or understand what he was up to. Uh, However, I think we need to remember that regardless of whether God's people had inside information As much as we would like to have inside information, what I find interesting is that even those who got insider information from the Lord, they still 
had to walk by faith. Because oftentimes that insider information was so lofty and difficult for them to grasp or understand that it really didn't change much for them. They, they still had to walk by faith and go, okay, I don't know how God's going to do this. He, he's going he's to allow himself to be killed and then come back from the dead three days later. Never seen that before. It still didn't make sense. And so the disciples had to walk by faith and trust that. Now, I need to make a point of clarification here uh, because I fear being misunderstood. This does not mean we are incapable of understanding God's character. God's character is knowable from the scriptures and what he's given us in the scriptures. And of course, there are many books that have been written by brilliant theologians about his character. I'm simply saying that what God is really up to at any given moment is often unknown. Next, the second insight, letter B, is this. Most of God's people only see what God does. Most of God's people only see what God does. It says in the second half of Psalm 103, verse 7, that the Lord may known his acts to the people of Israel. In other words, to use the metaphor of a Broadway play, most of us only see what God allows us to see on the front of the stage. While his intentions, motives, or long-term plans remain backstage, behind the curtain. Now, I need to make another point of clarification here, because I, again, fear being misunderstood. It's often not our fault that we only see what God does as an act. It's actually his prerogative on whether or not to pull back the curtain on any given occasion. I'm reminded of Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. You might want to jot that down, and you can look it up later in your Bible. But Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that are revealed belong to us. In other words... It, the Lord reveals it, we get to see it and understand a little more what he's doing, but he doesn't always do that. There are secret things that only God knows about what he's up to. And so, few of God's people understand why God does what he does, and most of God's people only see what he does. Thus, our big idea for today is this, if I could boil it down into one simple Twitter post, or principle. It would be this. God's character is dependable, but his ways are unpredictable. God's character is dependable, but his ways are unpredictable. You've probably heard the cliche that God moves in mysterious ways. I think what people often mean by that is that in excuse me, is that the Lord is unconventional. It's, he, he does not bind himself to or conform to what we would consider established norms, previous patterns, or acceptable standards. God doesn't do that. 
He's on his own plane, doing his own thing. And so, for example, the Lord often does things no one else has seen before, but even though he does something that was original and never seen before, it doesn't mean he's going to do it again and create a pattern. Like a miracle, for example. He may do a miracle, but it doesn't mean he'll always do a miracle when those circumstances recreate themselves. Or, another way to put it, I think if we were totally honest with each other this morning, I think we would admit that one of the most common frustrations we have with the Lord is that he does not think or act human. And this frustration might be rooted in the fact that we would prefer he learn to think and act like us because it's harder for us to learn how to think and act like him. And so, I've titled this message, Why is God Consistently Unconventional? Because I think he is. And whenever I think I've started to figure him out, I learn that I haven't. And perhaps you've been there as well. But if you pressed me to give a short answer to the question proposed in the title, why is God consistently unconventional? My short answer would simply be this. I think it's so he can reveal his character. I think he does it to reveal his character. And so in the remainder of our time together today, I'd like us to take an honest look at four acts of God that each reveal a different facet of his character. We're going to hop around to a few different scripture passages this morning. I want to encourage you to follow along and turn to those passages with me and perhaps bookmark them so that you can study them further during your morning devotions this week. Let's, let's begin by turning to Joshua chapter 6. Joshua chapter 6. Joshua follows the book of Deuteronomy and is before Judges. Joshua chapter 6. And then after you turn there, here's the first point on your outline. Number one, the Lord often defies our logic to show his omniscience. The Lord often defies our logic to show his omniscience. Omniscience is a term that theologians use to describe the fact that God is all-knowing. He sees all things, hears all things, and knows all things. This means that he has never needed to learn something because he has never lacked any knowledge or wisdom on any topic. And he's never lacked any knowledge or wisdom on any topic in eternity, past, present, or future. Now, in Joshua chapter 6, the people of Israel have moved out of the wilderness. Moses has died, and Joshua has been appointed by God as their new leader. And God's people have crossed the Jordan into the very beginning of the promised land. Now, in order to claim the land that God had promised them 
several years earlier, they had to drive out the native people through a series of military conquests. One of the first strategic battles that needed to take place was at a city called Jericho. Uh, Follow along with me as I read Joshua chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do it for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall flat. And the people shall go up, every one straight before him. Now, Joshua ends up doing what the Lord instructed. Uh, scholars believe the nation of Israel, and this is worth noting here because it kind of adds to the absurdity of what God was asking Joshua to do. Scholars believe the, people, the nation of Israel at this time numbered over 2 million people. And Numbers chapter 26 tells us that over 600,000 of those 2 million were able to bear arms. So the people of Israel, they had sufficient numbers. They, they had the ability to go wage war. Now, they did not have sophisticated artillery or, or great weapons because they had been in the wilderness for 40 years and they had been mobile, but they did have numbers on their side. And yet the Lord basically says, the army gets to sit this one out. Call the marching band and the priests. And so let's look at verses 20 to 21. And so the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down, or fell flat. So that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. Now, when we're talking about God's omniscience, the fact that he is all-knowing, this passage raises the question, what is it that God knew that the people of Israel did not Well, they had forgotten something that the Lord said back in Deuteronomy. And again, one of the qualities that comes with God's omniscience is that he never forgets. Because forgetting is something that only humans do. But what he told the people of Israel back in Deuteronomy, chapter 2, verse 25, is this. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. So, so in other words, years earlier, the Lord told the people of Israel, I'm in essence going to go before you and I'm going to cause word to spread about you 
to put fear in your enemies. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make them be afraid of you before they've even fought a battle with you or seen any of your weaponry. Then the Lord goes on in Deuteronomy 7, verses 22 to 23, and further clarifies what he's going to do for his people. The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little. But the Lord your God will give them over to you and throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed. The Lord, he had not only gone ahead of his people to Jericho, but he also knew exactly how many were inside the city, how many hairs were on their heads, and what they feared most. I once read a story, a short little story, about a Chinese emperor in the 2nd century B.C. named uh, Shi Huang Ti. <laughs> he claimed to have 80,000 eyes. Now he was referring to 40,000 watchtowers that he had established along the Great Wall of China. Every day and night, this emperor posted soldiers in each of his watchtowers to guard the safety of China against potential enemies. Some historians have described this as the greatest example of vigilance ever known to the world. However, Emperor Xi's vigilance was at best only human watchfulness. Because man is not omniscient, the watchfulness of these 40,000 watchtowers and the soldiers in them only gazed in one direction and only looked for one thing. And their watchfulness was limited by darkness, human corruption, and carelessness. None of which is true about the Lord's watchfulness. None of which is true about the Lord's omniscience. So as remarkable as it is that Emperor Xi had 80,000 eyes keeping an eye, a watch over the wall of China, there's a greater vigilance, and that is the watchfulness of the Almighty God. Because he sees all things and doesn't miss a thing, ever. So how do we apply this truth, this, this character trait of God's omniscience? Here's an application that comes to mind. What do we do now that we know this about God? Well, I think we need to obey the Lord regardless of whether he makes sense. We need to obey the Lord regardless of whether he makes sense. You probably have heard that phrase or maybe uttered it yourself. Well, that doesn't make sense. And it's, it's our way of saying, I don't understand, or I've never seen that before. But why do we need to obey the Lord regardless of whether he makes sense? Well, because our theology and history tell us there will always be things that God knows and God sees that we don't. Always. And there will be things that he knows and things that he sees that we can't know and see. And so requiring the Lord to make sense to us first 
is a prideful way of telling the Lord, you know, we need you to explain your infinite ways to our finite pea brains first. And um, if our finite pea brains can understand your infinite thoughts, well, then we'll do what you say. That's, that's conditional obedience, right? Now, obviously, that's never going to happen. And this is why the, the Lord had to remind the people of Israel a few centuries later in Isaiah 55, and you've probably heard the verses, they're popular, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The Lord wants us to develop such an obedience and confidence in him that we'll do whatever he asks, regardless of whether it makes sense to us. Regardless of whether it makes sense on how to take a city like Jericho. So if he says, strike up the band and call the pastors, tell the army to sit it out, we do it because the Lord said so. And we trust that he sees things and knows things that we don't see and know. So God's character is dependable, but his ways are unpredictable. Why? Because he likes to reveal his character through his ways. Next, if you would turn with me to Judges chapter 7. Hang a right and go to the next book, Judges chapter 7. And after you turn there, here's number two on your outline. The second truth that God's acts reveal to us. And that is that the Lord sometimes diminishes our resources to show his omnipresence. The Lord sometimes diminishes our resources to show his omnipresence. I'm saying sometimes on purpose here because he doesn't always do this, but when he does, there's always a purpose. Omnipresence is a term that theologians use to refer to the fact that God is not limited by any dimension, location, or space. He is able to be present anywhere, at any time, with anyone, at the same time. So, it, for example, that's what allows the Lord to meet with me at my house uh, during my morning devotions on Tuesday morning and to meet with you at your house during your devotions at the same time. Now, uh, in the book of Judges, the people of Israel were in another season of wandering away from the Lord. And as a consequence for their sin, the Lord had allowed the Midianites to conquer the Israelites for seven years. The people then cried out to the Lord for relief. And so the Lord responded by drafting an unlikely, unknown, insecure young man named Gideon. And Gideon was chosen by God, drafted by God, to lead the people of Israel against their oppressors. And after some encouragement from the Lord, Gideon begins to organize an army in chapter 7. Uh, follow along with me as I read verses 1 through 8. Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him, rose early and encamped 
beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moray in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Well, then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And then the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there and anyone of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, and shall go with you and anyone of whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you, and shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue, as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. Excuse me, everyone who kneels down to drink. Verse 6, And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you, and give the Midianites into your hand, and let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him, in the valley. So, 32,000 down to 300. Now, most of you know the rest of the story. Gideon and his miniature army defeated the much larger Midianites and Amalekites in a surprising upset. Uh, The Lord was, in essence, saying to Gideon, you know, it doesn't matter how many soldiers you have. In fact, as we saw back in, uh, I think, verses 2 and 3, The Lord did not want the people of Israel boasting because he knew they'd be prone to do that. Instead, the Lord was saying, if I'm on your team, you can't lose. You need me more than you need an army. Now still, you might be wondering, well, but why why does God have to do that? I mean, that's just really, I mean, golly, I mean. Those guys, those poor men, they went up to the front lines and they had to turn around and go back home. I mean, what a rough day. Here's why I think uh, the Lord does this. Diminishing of resources. And that is that most people will never realize Jesus is all they need until Jesus is all they have. No matter how hard or how much we try to say we're trusting in the Lord... Most of us need to experience the desperation of having everything removed from us to where we experience only having the Lord. And if you haven't gone through a season like that yet, don't be surprised when it comes because it is common and normal for those who have a close walk with the Lord. So, how do we apply this? What do we do with this truth? Well, I think we need to accept that his presence is all you really need. 
In Exodus 33, the Lord commanded Moses to lead the people out of Sinai, the Sinai region, towards the land of Canaan. However, the Lord said he would not go with them because they were a stiff-necked people. It's not good when the Lord calls you stiff-necked, by the way. And Moses' reply in Exodus 33 is beautiful, and it's, it's a prayer that I have prayed many times myself. Uh, the, Moses says, if your presence will not go with us, then I don't want us to leave here. <laughs> because your presence is more important than us going to the promised land. Moses knew that he had to have God's presence so bad that he didn't want to leave where he was. Even if it meant getting to a land, a country they would call their own, and having their own farmland and territory and being able to put down roots, Moses said, ah, I don't want that. I want the Lord. He also knew that if the Lord was with him, he could go anywhere worry-free. And for centuries, the omnipresence of the Lord has been a source of comfort for saints who were afraid, lonely, or discouraged. And it can still be a comfort for us today. So, the Lord sometimes diminishes our resources to show his omnipresence, that he is with us, and that all we need is him. Next, let's turn to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4 in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. I want to show you another passage that reveals a portion of God's character. Mark chapter 4. And after you turn there, here's number 3 in your outline. The Lord sometimes defeats our trials to show his omnipotence. The Lord sometimes defeats our trials to show his omnipotence. I've chosen to say sometimes, again, because this is something the Lord does more than never, but less than often. <laughs> uh, the majority of the time, I think he lets our trials take their course for the greater good of making us more like Christ. But omnipotence is a term that theologians use to describe God as being all-powerful. It means that no one gives God power, nor can anyone take power from him. It means that he never tires from expending his power because he has unlimited power. And his unlimited power, it was displayed in creation, for example, in Psalm 33, when it says, he spoke and it came to be. Oceans, poof, there's oceans. Mountains, Mountains. I don't know if that was the actual sound that was made, but I'm trying my best to make this interesting with some sound effects. Maybe there was an explosion, you know, trees. But the point is, is that his omnipotence allowed him to speak things into existence that we now see. He didn't have to work or conjure something up or go get help or do research or anything like that. If the Lord wanted to make a whale, he made a whale. If he wanted to make a river, he made a river. He also proved his omnipotence over death when he raised Lazarus back to life. 
And then, of course, another example of his omnipotence is seen over weather. In this popular story in Mark 4 about Jesus calming the storm. Follow along with me as I read uh, verses 35 to 41. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now there are two things to keep in mind regarding this story uh, so that we can understand the significance of it. First of all, the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 8, where Matthew records his version, his experience with this, um, Matthew tells us this was no April shower. Uh, it was a massive storm. I remember uh, when I preached on this a couple of years ago, it's the Greek word seismos. Uh, it was like an earthquake kind of storm. Secondly, many of the disciples were seasoned fishermen who were accustomed to seeing inclement weather on the Sea of Galilee. And so their reaction to this storm tells us it was unlike anything they had seen before. Now, I think this storm also serves as a metaphor for any severe trial that suddenly enters our life. Storms like this may either be sent by God or allowed by God, but they are always designed to make us cry out to God. And when we do, if it's in agreement with his will, the Lord will provide a demonstration of his power by diffusing the storm for us. And so the Lord sometimes defeats our trials to show his omnipotence. He will do the unconventional, the unexpected, to remind us that no one else is like him in the universe and no one else has power over him. And that he has power that he can use to interject into our lives to show that he is God and that he is in control. So how do we apply this? Well, I think we need to rely on his power and not our own. As we can, I think, assume from the passage the disciples were probably trying to row and use their expertise on the Sea of Galilee to fight the storm, and they were obviously unsuccessful. As we saw in the couple previous passages we looked at with the people of Israel, like uh, in the story about Gideon, the Lord knew the people of Israel would want to take confidence and rely on their own military and then boast about what their army did before uh, conquering the, Mil the Midianites and the Amalekites. And so notice how everything changed in the storm when they stopped trying to row 
and navigate it by themselves. Everything changed when they cried out to the Lord. Relying, I think, on the Lord's power begins with acknowledging our own limitations. We have limited strength, we have limited resources, and we lack the power to even change ourselves without God's help. And we certainly cannot change others, but we try and fail. Relying on the Lord's power continues, though, with reflecting on his wondrous works that he's done in the Scriptures. And the times that his power has shown up in our own lives. Even the prophet Jeremiah needed to be reminded of this by the Lord. In Jeremiah 32, uh, the Lord uh, says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? And of course, it's a rhetorical question. Because you don't want to say, yeah. (laughs) No. (laughs) Sorry. Okay. But what it means is that I think we can be comforted by the fact that there is no problem too difficult in our lives for the Lord to solve with his power, his omnipotence. God's character is dependable, but his ways are unpredictable so he can reveal his character. Here's the final passage I'd like us to look at, 2 Kings chapter 5, if you would turn back into the Old Testament, 2 Kings 5. And in 2 Kings chapter 5, here's the truth that we can glean from this passage about the Lord, and it is that the Lord often dismantles our expectations to show his sovereignty. The Lord often dismantles our expectations to show his sovereignty. Sovereignty is a word used by theologians to describe how God has a loving care for his creation through which he controls the universe for his glory and our good. Another way to describe God's sovereignty would be it's God's hand working behind the scenes of history to accomplish his plans. Even working through the decisions of man. That shows how powerful he is too. In 2 Kings chapter 5, we're introduced to a wealthy, powerful military commander from the Syrian army named Naaman. Naaman was an unbeliever Uh, who had committed some brutal acts against the people of Israel. But despite his power and wealth, he had leprosy. And so knowing that the only person who could heal him was the Lord, Naaman traveled to Israel to see the prophet Elisha for a healing. And so we pick up the story in 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 9 through 14. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. He wanted to try and buy a healing. Verse 10, And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry. And he went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. 
Are not Abana and Fapar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned, and he went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So... Naaman went down and he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. Expectations sometimes, not always, are rooted in pride. They are our attempt to control the future. When they are rooted in pride, they often come across as rights that we have put before God. Because Naaman was a proud man, he felt entitled to have a face-to-face meeting with the famous prophet Elisha. But when Elisha refused to to give a hearing to him and meet with him, and instead sent a messenger with what sounded like absurd instructions... Naaman was greatly offended and became angry. In this story, it's important to note that Naaman got what he needed. He just didn't get it the way he expected. And it wasn't until he humbled himself by washing the Jordan that he was healed. It was Elisha's way of telling him, God cannot be bought, and he is the one who's in control. The Lord takes orders from no one. Uh, Naaman, you cannot dictate how you will be healed. Or to use the contemporary cliche, beggars can't be choosers, right? So how do we apply this truth about God's sovereignty? Well, I think we need to yield our need to control to his sovereignty. Yield your need to control to his sovereignty. This is what Job did after the Lord allowed the adversary to take his wealth, health, and family. Job simply said something is difficult to say. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. One of the many reasons I think yielding to God's sovereignty is easier said than done is that our inherited sin nature blinds us to how controlling we actually are. I mean, none of us walks around going, yeah, I'm I'm controlling. You might want to watch out for me. I might try to tell you how to drive, and I might tell you what you need to wear, or how you should eat your lunch, or whatever. Nobody admits that. And then when somebody else points it out to us, our, our reaction is usually not humility. Oh, thank you so much for pointing that out to me. I appreciate that. I'm going to really work on giving up control in my life because it actually comes naturally to me and it's easy for me to do. And so I have learned personally over and over again in all my years walking with the Lord that the quickest way for me to regain peace when I'm anxious is for me to re-surrender all my desires, all my expectations, all my frustrations and worries back to him. 
There is a peace in having the mindset the Apostle Paul did in the book of Philippians, which is, Lord, I don't care what happens to me so long as your name is glorified and your gospel is spread. There's a great peace that comes with that. And one of the many benefits of having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as a result of the gospel message is that these character traits that we've talked about today, God's omniscience, his omnipresence, his omnipotence, and his sovereignty, if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, all those qualities work together for your good. You get to benefit from them as a child of God. And so if you've not yet repented of your sin and trusted in Christ alone for your eternal salvation, I would urge you to stop putting off the greatest decision you will ever make. Because it's only through a personal relationship with Christ that his omnipresence, omniscience, and omnipotence and sovereignty will begin to work unconventionally for your benefit. Well... C.S. Lewis uh, once told a story to illustrate how difficult it is for man to understand God. C.S. Lewis, of course, was a popular British writer and theologian from the mid-20th century and quite witty and very insightful. So he told this uh, story, maybe a fable per se, It was a hypothetical conversation between a group of shellfish. And in this imaginary dialogue, one shellfish tries to explain to the group of fellow shellfish what man is like. But the difficulty of the task requires this group of shellfish to rely entirely on their shared experiences. So, the leading shellfish tells them that man has no shell, that he's not attached to a rock, and he does not reside in water. And to help the first shellfish get his ideas across, a couple of his buddies expand on his statements, finally concluding that man is some sort of amorphous jelly, meaning he has no shell, He exists nowhere in particular, meaning he's not attached to a rock. And he never takes any nourishment because there's no water where man lives to drift food to the man. And what was the conclusion of the shellfish anthropologist? That man is a famished jelly existing in a dimensionless void. Well, in the same manner, don't our human limitations keep us from thinking rightly about the greatness of our infinite God? But what is the solution? Well, learning the truths that he has revealed about himself in the scriptures so we can grasp what he has told us about his character. There are things we can start to understand, but we will never get it all. We'll never fully understand God until we are with him someday. So God's character is dependable, but his ways are unpredictable. Why? So he can reveal parts of his character to us.
Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for the things that you do, first of all, in history that have been documented in the scriptures, but also the things that you have done in the various lives represented here. Thank you, Lord, that you have demonstrated omniscience and omnipresence and omnipotence and sovereignty. Lord, I also, though, want to pray for those who really need to feel your omnipresence. Lord, please, would you make your omnipresence known to those who are needing comfort today? Father, I want to also pray for those who are needing to see your omnipotence. They may be facing an overwhelming trial that is too big for them to conquer or try and face on their own. And what they need, Lord, is for you to show up in your great power and to do something that only you can do. Please, Lord, would you do that so that they can have a God story, a story of praise to tell others about how you came through, something fresh, something current, something real in today's time and world. Not that the things that you've done in the past and the scriptures were unreal. Father, we also just want to I also just want to pray for those who need to see your sovereignty work together for good. You promised that in your word, Lord, that you will work all things together for good, that you have the ability to exercise control over people and events and time. Lord, would you do that for those who are needing the comfort of your sovereignty, those who are needing to know that you are in control. And finally, Lord, we thank you that through Jesus Christ, it is possible for us to benefit from these character traits. Thank you, Lord, that you took the initiative by loving us while we were still yet sinners, standing ready to forgive us when we would repent and trust in Christ alone. If there is anyone here today who has not done that, Lord, please, would you make today the day of salvation for them. We pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.